Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Regina. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Understanding the Role of Immunotherapy in Treating Cancer. And this is part one of New Trends in Immunotherapy. And today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb, the Anna Fuller Fund, and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, there are many people on the call today. We have over 325 participants who come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. We also have a number of international countries. I'm just going to name them. Australia, Canada, Colombia, Egypt, Iran, Israel, Italy, Lithuania, Nepal, Pakistan, Thailand, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call, and it's a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Christ. Dr. Christ is William and Joy Rain, Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Royal Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris will be addressing an overview of immunotherapy in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu, and harnessing the immune system in treating lung cancer. It's my pleasure now to this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Oh, thanks, Carolyn. And uh, welcome, everybody, to uh, today's session. Hopefully, uh, you'll find it useful. Um, it's uh, kind of an honor to speak about the immune system. It's, it's sort of one of the most amazing uh, parts of our body. You know, we're constantly in a world of infectious demons, bacteria, viruses, whatever, uh, in and outside of our body, and our immune system protects us against that. Um, we have um, a, a cells in the body that make uh, antibodies, so-called B cells, and cells also that, when activated, directly kill infectious organisms. Uh, and our ability to do this is what keeps us alive. If, if this didn't work, we, we'd all be uh, uh, not on the earth. And also, we've been able to uh, harness this um, wonder through the use of uh, vaccines against infectious diseases. Uh, and uh, I don't know if my colleagues today will agree, but probably the greatest triumph in medicine has been the emergence of uh, vaccines and immunizations uh, because they can prevent you know, deadly diseases. I want to begin with a reminder to everyone on the call today to please speak to your healthcare team and make absolutely sure that you have uh, up-to-date vaccines uh, for seasonal flu, for COVID-19, for pneumonia, and for shingles. And for both influenza A and for COVID, there are medications available that can help us uh, guarantee and speed your recovery. Uh, and I urge you, if you get either of those illnesses, to contact your healthcare professional. There are some pretty rare uh, situations where you might not want to get these vaccines. Uh, they're pretty rare, though, and I urge you to do that. You need to be protected by this. And just a, a quick word on COVID. Since the COVID vaccines have uh, come, not a single one of my patients has lost their life to COVID. And that was not the same before the vaccines were available. And I only treat people with lung cancer. Now, very early on, as we learned to understand the immune system, people said, well, why can't we turn this immune system against cancer as well? And, and folks have been doing this now for over 100 years. And frankly, we, we didn't make uh, great strides in this until the end of the last century and the early part of this one. Um, probably the biggest single discovery was to find a way to manufacture the antibodies that our own body would make against uh, uh, an infectious invader and to use those antibodies to uh, find or uh, the term people use is to target various proteins and substances in the body. 
And what this has done is to let you give a uh, antibody that can turn on or turn off uh, a certain uh, effect of a cancer cell. I think I'm going to speak specifically about lung cancer. One of them was the uh, antibody cetuximab. There's another one, panitumumab. These antibodies target the EGFR protein. And if cells are uh, regulated by that protein, giving this monoclonal antibody turns them off and those cancer cells will die. There's other antibodies that are directed against targets that have to do with angiogenesis, the uh, creation and maintenance of the blood vessels that feed cancer. There's two drugs, abevacizumab and ramucirumab. Uh, both these drugs approved for lung cancer, improved for a lot of other lung cancers, commonly used with ovarian colorectal cancer as well. These drugs uh, augment the effects of uh, chemotherapeutic agents by attacking the blood vessels that um, go to the cancers. And again, the technology that that brought this on was understanding how these antibodies are, are created, manufacturing them and giving them back to people uh, to uh, turn off these various processes. The next generation of these antibodies are something called antibody drug conjugates. And there's a couple of them uh, approved already, uh, I know, for breast cancer and for lung cancer. What the scientists have done is they've taken the antibodies against a specific target, and probably the most studied one now is uh, the target is HER2, the target of the uh, uh, monoclonal antibody trastuzumab. And what they've done is they've attached a chemotherapy to this antibody. So when injected into a person, the antibody finds its way to the cancer cell that bears this protein on its surface. And not only does it affect the uh, activity that follows the uh, activation of the antibody and the, the target, it also brings with it a chemotherapy drug. So it takes chemotherapy right to the cancer cell. And probably the biggest example of this now is an agent in breast cancer, a drug called uh, trastuzumab derixtecan. Uh, and this drug has been approved for breast cancer. It's now approved for lung cancer for, for individuals that have activation and mutations in the HER2 gene, HER2 gene. That's the same gene that trastuzumab will work in, the drug Herceptin. The last example of monoclonal antibody, and probably the one with the biggest impact in, in people with the cancer and lung cancer, are the antibodies that go against the T-cell checkpoints. Now, our body... Is, and our immune cells, they're a symphony. They, they're, there's constant back and forth of turning them on, turning them off. And our body has a very sophisticated system to turn them on and turn them off. And one thing that has happened is that cancer cells have found a way to trick our immune system, to uh, turn off immune cells, uh, partly through a, a certain a protein called PDL1, which turns off cancer cells. Now, by giving an antibody that blocks this PDL1 on cancer cells and other immune cells in the body, um, you can undo the effect of the cancer. And this has unleashed a huge revolution in the treatment of lung cancer by having these immune checkpoint inhibitors. So today, 60% of small cell lung cancers 65% of adenos carcinomas, squamous carcinomas, two-thirds of people with lung cancer nowadays get one of these checkpoint inhibitors. And I think many of you have heard the names of these drugs, uh, atezolizumab, semiplumab, dervalumab, nivolumab, pembrolizumab. All those drugs target PDL1. There's another class of drugs that target another immune checkpoint, CTLA4, ipilimumab, and tremolimumab. Uh, both of these drugs are available and approved for lung cancer. Now, the vast majority of these drugs are given with chemotherapy, the standard chemotherapies. However, there have been advances now in the lung cancer field where these drugs are given after a successful surgery, so-called adjuvant therapy, and two drugs are approved for that now, pembrolizumab and atezolizumab. Uh, in 2022, there was the emergence of giving these immune drugs with chemotherapy before uh, surgery so-called neoadjuvant therapy. And these drugs are very useful by themselves, particularly in patients whose tumors have a high expression of the PDL1 protein and or have a very high number of uh, mutations in the cancer cells, so-called tumor mutation burden being high. These patients are much more likely to have benefit uh, from these checkpoint drugs and they're given often by themselves. 
Sometimes they're given with the ipilimumab or trimalimumab as well. So um, this is a great advance in the uh, treatment of cancer in general and lung cancer. I think the figure for a drug like pembrolizumab, now there's 20 different cancers that, that are, this drug is being used. They're used now in the majority of patients with lung cancer. They're generally used with chemotherapy. Um, it's very likely you may receive them at some time uh, in your illness. Uh, the only folks who rarely receive them because they're just not as effective are patients that have a so-called oncogenic driver, things like an EGFR mutation or an ALK rearrangement. Those patients generally do not have the uh, very strong benefit. And these drugs have really worked in fighting cancer, and they really worked in keeping cancer away. And it's allow us to bring the term cure into the vocabulary of oncologists meeting with patients facing uh, a lung cancer, even one that's spread. So harnessing the immune system has been huge. Uh, it's used in the majority of patients now. It's a really important part of your care, and I think it's something to learn about and talk to with your healthcare professionals. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was really an outstanding presentation. You really have to say you set the stage for today's program um, by really introducing the whole concept of immunotherapy and, and also your focus, of course, on infectious disease uh, uh, vaccines and then also the importance of them and then also in terms of its treatment um, uh, immunotherapy for the treatment of uh, lung cancer and other cancers as well. So thank you. Um, thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Kamal Abu Hussein. And Dr. Hussein is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School of Rowan University, Adjunct Assistant Professor, Department of Breast Medical Oncology, MD Anderson Cancer Center, Co-Director of the Janet Knowles Breast Cancer Program, Director of Breast Cancer Clinical Trials, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper. And Dr. Hussein will be addressing harnessing immune system in treating breast cancer and clinical trial updates, how research contributes to your treatment options. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hussein. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. It's always good to be here. Uh, so I will echo what you said. Actually, Dr. Chris just gave us a very nice intro regarding the story of using antibodies that normally would attach themselves to certain um, antigens on the surface of cancer cells. And breast cancer is very famous for a lot of examples like the anti-HER2 antibodies like Herceptin and uh, Pergetta, and the story of the antibody drug conjugates, those smart design type molecules that have chemotherapy attached to them, and they only release those chemotherapy particles inside the cancer cells so they help spare the healthy cells the effects of the chemotherapy side effects. And those drugs have really made a revolution in the management of the HER2-positive uh, subtype of breast cancer. Immunotherapy can be used to treat some types of breast cancer, and an important part of the immune system is its ability to keep itself from attacking normal cells in the body. And to do this, it uses something called checkpoints. And those are proteins on the immune cells that need to be turned on or turned off to start an immune response. So immunotherapy basically is the use of medicines that boosts a person's own immune system to recognize and destroy the cancer cells more effectively. And uh, even though there's a lot of ongoing clinical trials testing the use of the checkpoint inhibitors, uh, with other therapies for multiple subtypes of breast cancer, but the only subtype that has an FDA approval for the use of the checkpoint inhibitors in combination of chemotherapy is the triple negative breast cancer. And that is both in the early stage and in the later stages, so the metastatic setting. So I'm going to talk about a couple of trials that are really very important in that field. And the first one is the study that looked at the advanced or metastatic triple negative breast cancer. The name of this trial is Keynote 355, which is a clinical trial that compared women who have advanced triple negative disease who received a, an immunotherapy agent called Keytruda or Pemprolizumab in combination with chemotherapy compared to chemotherapy alone. And it was a large size trial. They um, evaluated more than 800 women and about uh, 320 of those women 
tested positive for the PDL1 marker, which is a marker for positivity or responsiveness to immune therapy. And of those women, uh, two thirds received the Keytruda along with the chemotherapy, and the remainder third received chemotherapy alone. They use very, very conventional chemotherapeutic agents. So if some of you are familiar with those names, Taxol, Abraxane, Gemcitabine, and Carboplatin, those are the ones that were used in the trial. And it was noted that there is a significant improvement in um, many endpoints. One of them is called progression-free survival, which means the length of time that the patients were alive without their cancer spreading, growing, or getting worse and also an improvement in the median duration of response from the treatment, and longer time that the patients were able to maintain themselves on treatment with immunotherapy plus chemotherapy compared to chemotherapy alone. Now, um, they also presented an update after the initial results of the trial came out, and the update tried to clarify what is the correct positivity for this pdl one testing. Uh, that portends a benefit from the use of immunotherapy in addition to chemo. And they used a marker called CPS, or Combined Positive Score. And uh, they found that a patient has to have 10 on this CPS score or higher. So now, it, it is a standard of care. Whenever we are evaluating a patient with metastatic triple negative breast cancer, we would initially test for the CPS score, and if it is 10 or more, we would normally combine Keytruda or Pemperolizumab to the chemotherapy backbone. Now, shifting gears and focusing on the early stage, high-risk triple negative breast cancer. Another very important trial, this time it's called the Keynote 522 clinical trial. And that included patients with triple negative breast cancer that are newly diagnosed and they're early stage. Those patients could have had a small cancer, so one to two centimeters and a positive lymph node, or more than two centimeters regardless of the nodal status. And they randomized the patients into two-thirds and one-third. So the two-thirds received a backbone of six months of chemotherapy along with Keytruda, and the one-third received chemotherapy alone for the same duration with the same agents. And the main endpoint that they were trying to assess in this clinical trial is something called PCR. PCR stands for pathologic complete response. I usually explain that to my patients by saying, this is the ability of the chemotherapy or the treatment that we give before surgery to completely eliminate all the cancer cells in the breast and in the lymph nodes. And they were able to see an improvement in this pathologic complete response from the addition of immunotherapy to chemotherapy um, compared to chemotherapy alone. And that is why this regimen was approved. Um, now, as always, asked, uh, asked to um, touch on the concept of clinical trials. So clinical trials are experiments that are normally performed when testing any new medication or a therapeutic approach in order to see if we can improve the current standard of care in treatment of any disease. For the sake of our discussion here, it'll be cancer. And it is through the participation of our patients in those clinical trials that we're able to find better modalities for treating diseases in general and hoping to prevent the development of late stages or metastatic disease if we improve the current standard of care for treatment of some early stage diseases uh, that have high risk features. So I would always encourage my patients to consider participating in clinical trials if it is available, as you will almost always get something extra on top of the standard of care when you participate of the clinical trial. The main goal of a clinical trial is to improve on how we're doing right now. So they will always offer you something that is trying to improve the current standard of care. And participants in clinical trials will get access to new treatments, from certain conditions before it's available to the public. The people involved in the research study, including your physicians, nursing staff, research coordinators, will provide the participants with medical care and more frequent health checkups as part of being enrolled in a clinical trial. And above all, you really get to play an active role in your own health and in improving the standard of care for treatment of that type of cancer. When you do participate in a clinical trial, you do so 
freely and on your own will. So you get something called an informed consent. The informed consent involves providing a potential participant in a trial with adequate information to allow for an informed decision about participation in that clinical investigation. And this is very helpful in facilitating your understanding of the information and to get better and detailed information regarding the benefits and risks involved in that participation. Now, I always take every opportunity to hammer that point here. Now, diverse participants inform research results applying to the diverse society that we are living in. There are differences in the disease biology, differences in the ability um, of one person to handle or metabolize the drugs involved in the treatment of various conditions that varies based on who that person is, what is their ethnic background, what's their race, and so forth. So we have to have good representation of diverse backgrounds and races so that we are able to get a more realistic end result or conclusion that applies to a larger sector of the population. Also, the diversity among researchers is really important because it promotes trust, because participants feel more comfortable with researchers who they can identify with. And then last but not the least, I will always stress on the importance of the role of advocacy groups in helping shape and set the research agenda and open up dialogues around where needs are not being met in terms of current treatment options. This is a really, really essential point. Well, thank you so much for being patient and uh, back to you, Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hussein. That was a wonderful presentation, very comprehensive and a lot of information. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much, really excellent. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels. Dr. Daniels is professor of medicine, UC San Diego Morris Cancer Center. And Dr. Daniels will be addressing harnessing the immune system in treating melanoma, including cancer vaccines. And he will also talk about examples of immunotherapy in prevention, treatment, and recurrence prevention of cancer. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and Cancer Care for putting this on. Um, and I'm going to just break it up into two general things. Um, I'm going to give some introductory comments on melanoma in general, and then I'm going to focus on um, three um, more recent efforts um, in therapies and preventions and vaccines. So melanoma, cancer of the skin predominantly, although melanoma happens in the eyes and uh, GI tract, and those melanomas are, are separate from this discussion. So I'm just focusing on cutaneous melanomas where uh, the incidence uh, is still rising, um, but uh, more recently we've shown that the overall outcomes for patients are um, markedly and demonstrably improving. Some of that is awareness, um, early detection. So getting the word out uh, about melanomas is happening obviously in a place that's relatively easy to monitor but also occurring in people that um, we may not think are at high risk for melanomas. Those patients um, with um, more pigment in their skin um, are also at risk for melanomas, although uh, at a lower rate. And so, you know, one thing I always counsel patients um, coming in, even if I'm seeing them for other cancers, is, you know, see spot, see spot change, see a dermatologist, because one of the big things in melanoma is early detection, uh, has better outcomes. And over the years, for advanced disease um, that my colleagues have been talking about, some of these immune therapies um, have really taken a foothold in melanoma and been part of that improving the outcomes. And some of the names of the medications have already been said, pembrolizumab or nivolumab or ipilimumab, all a mouthful. These are natural regulators of an immune response that um, through these antibodies that Dr. Chris um, introduced as being able to develop, we can now use these checkpoints of the immune system and, and modulate them to get your own immune system to kill the cancer. And for some patients, um, these have been um, the beginning and the end of the answer. Um, we've seen some pretty dramatic responses in a subset of patients. But um, work is totally not done yet, and that's where I'll bring up kind of three areas um, that I think 
um, show some recent promise of uh, keeping pushing that bar forward. One is a concept um, or a term we call neoadjuvant therapy. And neoadjuvant, getting to my topic of um, treatments and preventions, neoadjuvant is a term we use when we treat a tumor that we that we see there. Uh, we want to cut it out, um, but first we give a treatment um, systemically or in the vein or by mouth uh, that tries to address the tumor, and then we cut it out. And that's a different thing than first cutting it out and then giving a preventative treatment. So neoadjuvant um, has a lot of advantages uh, for care pathways. Um, one is, as you can imagine, if you have an effective uh, treatment and you give up front, you can make the tumor smaller. And so when you go to cut out the tumor, um, maybe the surgery is easier or subsequent therapies such as radiation may not be required. And, and so across the board, people in lung cancer or breast cancer and now melanoma have tried to use systemic treatments in high-risk patients to improve the outcomes, um, both from the therapy point of view, as well as even uh, we're seeing event-free survival. That's our, our term to say, you know, better outcome, less cancer. It also gives us a ton of um, information about that particular tumor. Does it respond to therapies? Um, because again, if we're treating afterwards when we don't have a tumor to measure, we sometimes we're not sure um, the value of our treatments. And so in melanoma, there was a recent uh, clinical trial randomizing patients with um, stage three melanomas to uh, initial exposures to this pembrolizumab, or uh, they went through our standard um, practice, which is surgery, and then a drug like pembrolizumab. And the outcomes uh, showed better uh, as far as event-free survival and disease-specific survival uh, in this randomized study. This is not the end of the um, uh, uh, Research, however, um, because again, while it worked for some patients, didn't work for everybody. Is this the optimal way to do it? Again, there's lots more we need to discover, but it's um, probable that uh, neoadjuvant therapy is going to become part of our standard of care for patients after this uh, clinical trial. Another area that's um, getting a little attention are vaccines. Uh, again, Dr. Chris mentioned uh, vaccines you know, against COVID and flu and all those preventative vaccines. But treatment vaccines have always been um, looked at as a, a possibility. Um, to date, they've been a little disappointing. Uh, we've used different uh, strategies to try to educate the body uh, with a vaccine to get rid of a cancer or prevent a cancer. Uh, recently, um, I would call it a breakthrough has happened in that we're able to determine within a cancer those specific changes that are happening in a cancer that the immune system may be able to, to target. And with that information, uh, you can create a personal vaccine against a patient's tumor. And so the term you might see out there are neoantigen vaccines, personalized vaccines. These are all uh, efforts to quickly interrogate um, the tumor. This is DNA sequencing and and complex things that you know uh, ten years ago weren't feasible. Now we get all this information back within a few weeks, and we can create a personal vaccine uh, for patients. And these are showing promise in early clinical trials for melanoma, and um, larger studies are ongoing. And the third uh, kind of recent um, push forward I'll, I'll just highlight is on cellular therapy. And you'll hear this um, in the next talk some more about uh, different cellular therapies. But in melanoma, um, there have been now several studies that have uh, shown that we can take out the immune cells from the tumor, uh, grow them up, and then give them back to the patient. And while not an approved therapy yet, we're all hoping that within the next 12 months that uh, we have the ability to add this to the um, other immune checkpoints and potentially if we get these vaccines approved, uh, another tool that we can use. So I, I just want to leave you that I think you know the field's still moving pretty quickly. There's lots to be done, but there is lots being done. 
um, and I think uh, we're making some real progress. So I'll turn it back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was outstanding, a wonderful presentation. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, um, a lot of important concepts that were raised, and I think people will be curious to know more about them. So thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Ahmad Sawas. And Dr. Sawas is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Experimental Therapeutics of the Center of Lymphoid Malignancies, Division of Experimental Therapeutics, Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, New York Presbyterian Hospital, Herbert Irvine Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Sawas will be addressing harnessing the immune system in treating lymphoma and managing and reporting treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain to the healthcare team and follow-up appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Salas. Hello, everyone, and uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm going to try to continue the theme that my colleague started about talking about the immune system and truly uh, the immunotherapy has changed and continues to change the treatment paradigm and the outcome in the treatment of lymphoma in general. Dr. Chris started off by giving us a general introduction about the immune system and its importance. And I would like to add to that is that the immune system not only protects us from infection, but it also protects us from cancer. So the primary function of the immune system is to keep us healthy. And one of the things that it does it helps combat cancer. And one of the ways that cancer develops is by evading and tricking the immune system. So when we use and employ the immune, uh, immunotherapy, one of the things that we do, as my colleagues have talked about, is trying to target the cancer cells, uh, turning off certain uh, enzymes uh, through certain receptors, like the EGFR that is the uh, but also, in lymphoma, uh, the immune therapies help directly kill the cancer cells on their own and in combination with chemotherapy. And this is what we call uh, the simple monoclonal antibodies. And in lymphoma, uh, if you have somebody who you know who's being treated for lymphoma, you're yourself treated for lymphoma, uh, probably you've heard about rituximab and its uh, uh, derivatives uh, that have been used for more than 10 years now in the treatment of B-cell lymphomas, like the T-cell B-cell lymphomas. And the use of these agents has helped significantly uh, improve the response rate and the remission rate for these diseases. And we could keep people in remission and prevent progression of the disease by keeping patients sometimes on uh, these therapies. Something like rituximab, which is a protein similar to the antibodies that your immune system makes, in a way. Uh, like when you get a vaccine, you make an antibody against COVID. Uh, this is a manufactured antibody to a marker that's on the cells, on the B cells. In this case, the B cells that have become malignant called CD20. And uh, Rituximab helps identify these cells and pokes holes in them, and as a result, these cells are, are uh, destined to die as a result. And there have been many generations of agents targeting, for example, this CD20, like Ubuntuzumab or Kutuzumab to name a few. Now, cells and cancer cells continuously try to evade the immune system. And one of the things that you could imagine the immune system doing is altering the expression of this antibody, CD20. And as a result, you have to look for other markers on these cancer cells to target. And that's what's happened in lymphoma. So you have another target on B cells called CD19. And there are simple monoclonal antibodies that target that as well uh, that have been approved, like cefacitinab. So this is uh, a drug that has been studied and approved uh, in the U.S. for the treatment of diffuse large beta lymphoma in the relapse refractory setting for those patients who have exhausted two lines of therapy or uh, are not candidates 
for aggressive therapy like hydrochemotherapy transplant in the second line setting. And we see that these agents have significantly improved uh, the outcomes for these patients in terms of response, how much you could control and shrink and make the disease disappear, and for how long you could do that for. To give you an example, in diffuse large basal lymphoma, patients who relapse after frontline therapy uh, and are not able to receive high-dose chemotherapy and stem cell transplants typically have an expected progression-free survival before they progress on whatever therapy you give them for around six months. This new agent, map, which kind of overcomes the resistance to CD20, because it has a different target, is able to push that on average in the study to 18 months. You could double the time that the patient, uh, uh, before the patients progress by using a different antibody. And there are other antibodies that target other molecules, like CD52, which are used in CLL, uh, and some fetal lymphomas uh, that have been available for some time. Similar to other disease states, the monoclonal antibodies have been used to target chemotherapy to cells. And this is taking chemotherapy that you cannot give into the vein directly because it's so toxic, but you really want to harness its efficacy and harness uh, the therapeutic window for it. And by using an antibody drug conjugate, where you conjugate and connect this chemotherapy to the antibody, maybe the antibody cannot kill the cell with it, you cannot target the cell to turn on or off a switch in the cell, but you use it like a Trojan horse to deliver this really toxic moiety, this toxic agent, that you cannot get into the vein, into the cancer cells, and concentrate the, the chemotherapy into the cancer cells and gain activity of that. The first one to be approved really was Fintoxinab Pidotin. This is a target towards uh, a marker called CD30 that's expressed in Hodgkin cells, it's expressed in T cell lymphomas, and expressed in some B cell lymphomas. And uh, it has shown an overall survival advantage by combining bertoxinamide with chemotherapy in the upfront treatment of Hodgkin's lymphoma, and also in T-cell lymphoma, which typically didn't have much immunotherapy to offer, uh, by reducing the risk of death by more than a third. So now this bertoxinamide for patients who uh, express CD30 on their T-cell lymphomas is indicated in the frontline setting because it's able to significantly improve progression-free survival the time for the patient to progress, to progress the benefit of frontline therapy, but also it's translated to a survival advantage, meaning people live longer if they receive this treatment appropriately in the upfront setting. We see other targets for this antibody drug conjugate targeting CD79, the something called pertuzumab-bidotin, and we see now that's affecting diffuse large diesel lymphoma, so a study called Polarex, which compared the traditional therapy, R-TROP, to uh, R-Polar chip, basically substituting one of the chemotherapies with an antibody drug conjugate, a more enhanced version of this chemotherapy. And uh, early on, we see a significant improvement in progression-free survival for those patients. Time will show us if that translates to an overall survival, although that highly uh, expected. Uh, even CD19, I'll mention it quickly, uh, Lancetuzumab, Caserdin, uh, has been approved also in the relapse refractory setting. And I mentioned these agents to show you how much uh, uh, potential there is and how many options there are for patients today for uh, the treatment of lymphoma using these immune therapy mechanisms. Uh, these agents, of course, come with some toxicity, and when you receive them, or about to receive them, the healthcare team will review them. A lot of the monoclonal antibodies, they can have uh, what we call infusion-related drug reactions. This is while the drug is entering the system through the vein. Uh, it can cause like a hypersensitivity reaction that could be mild, like itching and warm. It could have some fevers. In very extreme cases, 
and in rare cases, it could cause a compromise to the respiratory system, almost like an uh, anaphylactic shock kind of reaction. But usually it's not really anaphylactic, and the patients can uh, receive treatments with steroids and fluids and resume the same drug that they're having a reaction to in the same setting. Uh, uh, so it's not an allergy per se, it's a hyper reaction. In terms of the antibody drug conjugates, the toxicity usually doesn't come from the antibody itself, it comes from the drug. And a, a, lot, a common theme in the Vidotin family is, uh, like the Vidotinab Vidotin, uh, the Vidotinab, is neuropathy. And this is something, again, when you see your clinical team each visit, you should report to them any changes that you feel, and they should be assessing for neuropathy as they're aware that this is a major side effect of these patients. I want to move to talking about these mechanisms of actions of directly attacking the cells or tagging the cells to newer mechanisms of actions which say the T cells, the portion of our immune system that's really uh, involved in the surveillance for cancer, how can we activate that component to detect cancer cells and eliminate them? Um, my colleagues have talked before about the checkpoint inhibitors and talked about targeting PD-1, which is kind of, you can think about it as a flag that the cancer cell can sometimes raise and say to the immune system, don't kill me, I'm like you, I'm safe. And you can block that interaction so the, can so the immune system can identify the cancer cell and help eliminate them. And Pembrolizumab has some use in lymphoma, specifically in Hodgkin's lymphoma. It hasn't been as successful in C-cell lymphomas and B-cell lymphomas. And the challenge over there, of course, is these are the same, the same immune cells that are supposed to eradicate cancer are sometimes the uh, cancer cells themselves. They're the ones who are malfunctioning and misbehaving. Uh, there is further research that's being done there. But really, uh, the T-cell power has been unlocked in uh, in lymphoma and through two ways. One through antibodies that kind of introduce and bring together the immune cells, your T cells, the T cells that you want, that they're good, they're trying to kill the cancer cells and the cancer cells. So in a way, it links by binding the cancer cell to the immune cells. These are called bispecific, antibo uh, bispecific antibodies. And one has been uh, recently approved, uh, mosetunizumab. And this mosetunizumab binds CD20. Uh, As we mentioned in the B cells, this is an important marker for the B cells. Uh, and binds CD3. Uh, CD is a cluster of differentiation. It's basically a marker on these cells. And what it does is helps bring the T cells, the immune cells, to the cancer cells that express the CD20, the B cells, and eliminate them. And this is now approved in the relapse refractory setting, and it's an important mechanism for action for uh, the treatment of B cell malignancy. We went even a step further than that uh, through something called CAR-T. Uh, if you've been paying attention to the developments of lymphoma, You've heard a lot about CAR T's. There have been a lot of New England Journal of Medicine articles about this. There have been uh, some news articles uh, in major newspapers about the success of CAR T. And what it stands for is Chimeric Antigen Receptor T cell therapy. Uh, but for short, we call it CAR T. What they do is they go to the patient and filter out the cells, the T cells in their body, the normal T cells that you have in your body. And they take them to a special lab and they transfuse these cells, these healthy cells, with a specific vector that allows them to identify the receptor of entrance. So if you're interested in targeting CD19, which is what's approved right now, or CD20, or any other target, even a target on solid tumors, you could transfect these cells with that. And, as a, and then induce and allow these cells to grow in the lab and expand and mature so they're able to identify 
this specific receptor. And then you take these cells and you give them back to the patient. And what happens to these cells once they're infused back into the patient who has that specific disease is these cells are primed and ready to find that specific receptor that we targeted since then to. And they go and attack the cancer cells and eliminate them. And they're able to expand. And uh, in some cases, you could allow them to expand several times. This was uh, a major advance because this was the first time that this, uh, that second-line treatment in the two-part fetal lymphoma was challenged, where they compared this party approach to the traditional approach for the healthy patients, which is giving a lot of chemotherapy and following with a stem cell transplant. And the surprise was that the new approach was more effective than the old approach, reducing the risk of progression and events of death and progression uh, in general by 60%. So there's a 60% higher chance of, uh, 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 of the patients who receive CAR-T of doing better compared to the patients who receive the traditional treatment with high-dose chemotherapy and stem cell transplant. And now that's the standard care, of care uh, by the FDA and by the NCCN guidelines for patients with, who relapse or refractory within 12 months of frontline therapy for disease one fetal lymphoma. CAR-T is being expanded into other lymphomas and into other solid tumors. Of course, these advances and these improvements in not only response but in survival come with a price. And both the bi-specific and the CAR-Ts have introduced a new set of risks and toxicities for the patients and the patient teams taking care of them. Uh, and the teams are rising to the challenge of managing these toxicities. Uh, the toxicities up front were uh, a little bit of a surprise, but uh, the, med medical, uh, uh, the, uh, the medicine has risen up to the challenge, and we have much better ways to control them. Common things that we've seen with both the bispecific antibodies and the CAR-Ts has been uh, something called CRS, uh, cytokine release syndrome. When these T cells, your immune cells, attack cancer cells, they release specific hormones or chemicals called cytokines. And those help increase the body's temperature and allow the body to sometimes respond. If that response is too harsh, that could compromise uh, the patient so they can drop their blood pressure, uh, they can have a very high, high heart rate, and that could be dangerous in certain situations. This can be now managed by steroids uh, and uh, managed by certain uh, medicines uh, like interleukin-6 antagonists. So that's a an anti-cytokine enzyme that we uh, can deliver. And there is protocols in place to manage that to the point that now CAR-T therapy, you don't have to receive it in the hospital. You can receive it under certain conditions safely as an outpatient. And we see that also uh, for the bi-specific antibodies that we talked about. The other toxicity is neurotoxicity. Uh, some of the patients can have confusion, and, and extreme cases can have seizures. These are all very considerably rare, and there is ways to monitor and manage these toxicity. I think the most important thing to do is definitely be attuned and check in with the clinical team. They'll give you information on terms of toxicities that you experience uh, or expect you to experience and how to report on them. And, the, and, and there's no clinical facility that's giving these drugs and sending patients home. Uh, many of these facilities, there are guidelines uh, because they're very interested in the patients having the best of outcome. And it's imp the important thing is if you notice for the person you're taking care of or yourself and the people taking care of you when receiving these therapies, if you notice anything different, is to contact the team immediately and let them know. Uh, there's much to talk about, but I'm going to stop over here and allow for time for questions. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sawas. That was an excellent presentation, very comprehensive. 
and I'm sure there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services, and, um, and we'll move on. So get your questions ready for the Q&A. Um, so um, I'm Callan Messner. I'm Senior Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And I wanted to go over with all of you Cancer Care's free programs and services. So you can access uh, Cancer Care's services by contacting our Hope Line, 800-813-4673, or our website, www.cancercare.org. Um, we offer a host of services. Um, we have about over 40 oncology social workers, and we provide practical financial and co-payment assistance. We also offer support, online support groups, a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers about what your needs might be, and we also offer these educational workshops. And our website will give you an extensive review of all of the services that we offer. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A, and I'm going to ask Regina to explain to all of you how to queue up and ask questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Okay, and we have a number of questions, so let me just, um, we have a number of online questions, so let me, um, so this is a question um, uh, for, for Dr. Daniels. I'm in the, my second last maintenance stage of BCG immunotherapy at MD Anderson. Is there any scientific research that supports the idea that patients can improve results of immunotherapy through diet, exercise, et cetera? Yeah, um, that's a pretty common question. You know, what can we do to, you know, help improve our outcomes? And um, I have kind of two answers. One is um, absolutely yes. <laughs> um, having a um, heart-healthy diet, uh, which is generally higher in plants um, than animal products. So um, as much as possible and exercise uh, shows improved outcomes for cancer outcomes. And there have been specific examples of um, um, dietary interventions of um, high-risk patients. So I'm glad you're finishing up your therapy. And um, uh, what you can do is... Um, you know, talk to your team, and I would confirm that um, you're a candidate for a moderate exercise, and um, that's defined as um, at least 150 minutes a week of exercise. And then on dietary, um, that's probably a you know its own teleconference uh, itself. There's not an easy thing other than what again what I say is. Um, you know, staying away from processed type foods. So those things where you have to open up a wrapper and just put in your mouth. Um, I generally discourage patients um, unless they're on a hike up to Mount Whitney or something. Um, but whole foods, uh, plant-based diet as much as possible um, have been associated with better outcomes. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. Um, and for Dr. Hussein, I'm immunocompromised. What does this mean for me receiving immunotherapy? Uh, so I think that's a great question, um, and uh, in order to be able to accurately answer that question, I think um, I, I would like to understand better um, what do they mean exactly by being immunocompromised. So people can be immunocompromised because of having a certain viral infection or being on steroids or receiving some treatment that lowers their immunity, and uh, those are quite different from each other. When we are assessing patients, at least I can speak about uh, breast cancer, even though I'm sure it, it applies to pretty much most of the cancers, to whether they are good candidates for the use of immunotherapy or not, one of the things that we look for are contraindications to uh, starting immunotherapy. So if somebody is on a very high dose of steroids, somebody is having um, a subset of diseases called autoimmune disorders, and those are disorders like um, systemic lupus erythematosus or rheumatoid arthritis or, or others, 
that is not well controlled, usually those are uh, not good candidates to be started on immunotherapy because we can see um, some uh, significant repercussions from the use of, of immunotherapy. So I think it's a, it's a great question, but it needs more details before I can give a, an accurate answer here. Excellent. And another question for you, Dr. Hussein. What about clinical trials for those of us that have completed their, uh, in quotations, their to-date treatments, thus released or prompted to end said treatment? What is being researched for the 10-year mark? Are we to assume we are older and had a good, had good, had a good, good, um, had a good uh, run and docs are done with us? We uh, had our turn and good fortune. Any trials for seeing um, that we stay well while we await further drugs, treatments? Um, Absolutely. Another great question, and um, I, I assume um, uh, the person who's asking the question is um, referring to triple negative breast cancer. Uh, so as we discussed previously, um, there are many different subtypes of breast cancer, and uh, the immune checkpoint inhibitors have been tested out in multiple subtypes and currently continue to be tested out in those subtypes, but the one that has a lot of promise is the triple negative breast cancer. There are currently a lot of clinical trials that are evaluating the use of different types of immunotherapy for the triple negative uh, early stage breast cancers that received treatment before surgery and did not have a great outcome. And uh, we know that those patients are unfortunately uh, are at a much higher risk of cancer recurrence moving forward after they are done with their treatment. And that is where a lot of those trials are trying to explore the role of uh, introduction of therapies like immunotherapy to lower the chances of, of that happening in the future. I'm going to just give a quick example of an ongoing trial that I'm involved in where we are using um, a combination of immunotherapy in addition to one of the uh, antibody drug conjugates that we refer to in this population to uh, decrease the chances of recurrence in the future. Now, one thing important also for the same person who asked the question is when talking about triple negative breast cancer, the natural history speaks for itself really. So we usually are on very high alert and the chances of recurrence are um, sky high in or higher in the first one to three years, much less when we move up to year number five Past year number five, I usually tell most of my patients, especially if everything is going well, the chances of recurrence are very, very, very small. Nothing is impossible, but we get a lot of comfort that the patient will do exceptionally well moving forward. So if this person is already 10 years out of their treatment, I would be very hopeful and um, hopefully there won't be any bad surprises moving forward. Another question for you, Dr. Hussein. I've done six months of chemo, lumpectomy, and surgery. Pathology reports the cancer is gone. We'll be meeting with radiation doctor. Is there anything else I can do other than radiation or any clinical trials for radiation? And this is, and I think some of these are um, HER2. Another one, any clinical trials um, in the near future for ER positive and HER2 low patients? What happened to the present study with Nuvax? <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, multifaceted question, but it's a great one. Uh, so, is the person uh, HER2 positive or triple negative breast cancer? So, not triple negative, HER2, uh, ER positive, and HER2 low. And uh, they had complete resolution of their cancer after receiving chemotherapy before surgery. Correct. Clinical trials right now in the near future. It just uh, the question was just: Are there any clinical trials right now, or in the future, for ER positive and/or HER2 low patients? And what happened to the present study with Nuvax? That study that's going on right now. Um, so um, again, I, I think I would need more details to uh, address mm -hmm. this question um, more accurately, but. Uh, if a person does receive treatment before surgery with chemotherapy, whether they are triple negative or they are HER2 positive, 
um, and, and they're able to achieve complete elimination of the cancer from the breast and the lymph nodes, which actually a decent patient, a number of our patients mm -hmm. are able to do so. Those are patients that do exceptionally well and have an excellent prognosis. Um, if they're triple negative, we don't necessarily put them on any forms of therapy postoperatively. And if they're HER2 positive, they still have to continue um, more therapy moving forward. Definitely patients with hormone receptor positive breast cancer have to continue on endocrine therapy for a period of at least five years. Sometimes it is up to 10 years based on their risk status. Um, so the, the, the treatment is not done um, by them um, moving on with surgery and continuing completing radiation. Thank you. And Dr. Daniels, a question for you. I'm currently taking birth control medication. Should I stop taking this medication during immunotherapy treatment? Can it affect my treatment? Um, no, I would not stop. Um, that's a short answer. Um, there are, you know, some uh, interactions between hormone therapies and immune therapies, but some of these are potential um, and not uh, well clinically documented. I would, um, uh, I would definitely keep uh, birth control going through immune therapy. And uh, follow-up, uh, can my treatment be hazardous to friends and family, the immunotherapy treatment? Yeah, so yeah, it's short answer, no. Um, the, you know, the term immune therapy, we use it all the time for different things, so checkpoints, um, the pembrolizumabs that have been discussed and things like that, um, vaccines are immune therapies, cellular therapies are immune therapies. Um, but all these um, treatments, unlike, say, um, chemotherapy, where you're potentially excreting um, some chemicals, um, or uh, as the other patient had, uh, BCG, which is a, um, a type of bacteria, which is used, in a sense, as an immune therapy, um, but it's still a, a bacteria and potentially an infectious agent. Um, in general, um, immune therapies such as checkpoints and vaccines, um, they do not pose any risk to people around you. Excellent. Thank you. And I just want to remind everyone that we have a part two of this uh, program of series on immunotherapy, and that will take place on April 5th on side effects of immunotherapy. So it'll be a, more of a focus on side effects of immunotherapy. And um, also, um, I'm going to just ask um, if Dr. Um, Hussein, Dr. Daniels, and Dr. Sawas would just give a quick takeaway. This is a bit of takeaway for people to take away from today's program. I'll start with uh, Dr. Hussein. Uh, yeah, I, I think this is it's, it's a great advent. I think it's um, making a big difference in the outcome of the, the treatment uh, paradigm completely, but I think it's not a treatment for everyone, so it is something that should be considered carefully regarding side effects and best candidates to offer it to. Thank you. Um, and um, Dr. Daniels? I'd say, you know, um, it's complicated, and everybody's situation is a little different. Um, there were a lot of medications that were discussed and a lot of implications in those medications. So my take-home recommendation is, write down your questions, go into your healthcare provider. Um, you know, that's why they're there. They want to answer your questions and um, get all this addressed. And so everybody's um, situation is unique and um, you need to engage them. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Dr. Sawas, takeaways? Yes, I'll add to what colleagues have said that uh, there's never been a time in the treatment of cancer that has been more opportunities and uh, more hope than we are today. And I've definitely seen, and I'm sure my colleagues have seen, really the progression and the lives of cancer patients change. And uh, beyond what's currently approved and available from serious clinical therapies will provide to you, is to try to participate in clinical studies because uh, clinical studies uh, can give you access early on to some very active uh, and, and powerful medication. Uh, so definitely have hope and uh, see you
Excellent. Thank you. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank all of our participants as well for really asking such really great questions. Um, although we've done this program before, I think your questions were actually far more um, extensive and, and excellent, frankly, than um, ever before. I do, in concluding today's program, I do want to remind everyone that, of course, this is an hour program and that, of course, we can never cover everything that you need or address all of your questions. So I would in invite all of you to please take your questions that you asked or that you hoping to ask, that you're in queue to ask, or that, that you would, you're thinking you might want to ask. Go back to your treating healthcare team, um, as Dr. Daniel said, and talk to your team about your questions and really um, make a list of your questions and really ask them your questions. It's really important. And keep, continue doing that until you get the answers that you need. Also, um, please be aware that um, it seems that people seem to have issues evenings, weekends, and holidays. So be sure you have a way to reach your healthcare team during those times. Always check to see what, who is available. Can you call at those times and who would be the contact person that you could contact at your institution or at your physician's office? And most importantly, as we conclude the program, I do not want any one of you to feel alone in coping with cancer. I want you to know that you're now part of the community of support. We're here to help you. You can contact Cancer Care and um, our, our oncology social workers will be happy to help you. And also contact your healthcare team with your questions. They, they know you the best and they actually have access to, your, um, to all of your information. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.